Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest podcast. And this is going to be on the thoracic aorta in the post-operative period. We've written some articles on this, and I think as um, cardiac thoracic surgeons have gotten better at operating, as they've become more aggressive, imaging plays such an important role. We know that preoperative, we plan how the surgery will get done. Uh, we look for dissections and aneurysms and pseudoaneurysms. But in the post-operative period, we really start thinking about all of the complications. A great article by Linda Chu, after aortic root surgery, findings can be categorized as complications within the aorta, complications outside the aorta, and benign post-op changes. Distinction of normal findings from post-operative complications requires proper CT technique and a good understanding of the CT findings. And that indeed is very, very important because when a patient has uh, surgery involving the aorta, the post-operative studies are fairly impressive, right? You're gonna see fluid in the mediastinum, you may see, you're gonna see air, you're gonna see changes in the chest wall, and that's if everything goes perfectly well. So it's really a challenge at times not to overcall the presence of findings that might need re-intervention. Now, the fact is, as surgery has gotten better, the mortality rate has decreased. The expected mortality rate in elective aortic repair now is under 5%. But these patients still are at risk of developing early and late-term complications, and we're going to speak about this. Now, of course, in order to really be good at defining the complications, you have to have good protocols. When you want to look at the aortic root, you need to have a gated acquisition. The protocol is very similar to what you're doing for a coronary artery. You can use a bolus tracking, or you can do triggering off a preset value, or perhaps you can even do timing, though timing on a preset value can be a little bit tricky, particularly in older patients where it's a often variable cardiac output. We typically like to eject five cc's a second, about 100 cc's of contrast works well, and we use very thin sections. So we use 0.75 millimeters by 0.5. That's an ideal protocol, whether you're doing a 64 slice scanner or a dual source scanner, those parameters work very nicely because it allows us to do very good multiplanar and 3D reconstructions. Also, of course, nothing very surprising, the better your scanner, the faster it is, and so, uh, the length of time prevents uh, motion. The shorter the time, the more likely you are to get a good study. We also know that in analyzing the data sets, it's not axial imaging alone, but NPR and 3D are indeed critical. Volume rendering under the 3D realm for global visualization. And I will say that I often will do non-contrast scans in select cases uh, if I want to know exactly what's going on, perhaps I'm worrying about a leak. So you might see some high-density material that's post-operative. Uh, so non-contrast can be helpful. And occasionally we will do delayed scans in the 60 to 90 second range if I'm worried about a delayed leak. Article by Prescott, post-operative complications seen at CTA that require intervention include pseudoaneurysms, anastomotic stenosis, dissections, and aneurysms. As we said, there are many ways of thinking about things, but this uh, article by Linda Chu really makes it kind of simple. Complications within the root, outside the root, or benign post-op. So when we talk about within the root, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about pseudoaneurysms, true aneurysms, 
dissection, endoleak, and coronary osteoaneurysms. So what about pseudoaneurysms? They occur in less than 0.5% of cases after cardiac surgery. Metastinitis and graft infection are most common risk factors. And other risk factors are the fact that patients who have connective tissue type diseases, Marfan's, Takayashu's, are the ones that are at higher risk. Also, if you use biologic glue, an excessive use can lead to an increased incidence of pseudoaneurysms. Pseudoaneurysm locations at the graft anastomotic site, coronary artery anastomotic site, aortotomy site, the cannulation site, or needle vent site. And you could see that the graft anastomosis site is the most common site of uh, uh, pseudoaneurysms, but you can see pseudoaneurysms occur at sites where something has been done, and that's very important to remember. The uh, graft anastomotic site is number one with a coronary artery anastomotic site number two. Patients present with a range of symptoms from acute symptoms like chest pain, failure, or sepsis to an incidental finding on a post-op study. We've picked up many pseudoaneurysms, some small, some very large, and the patients are asymptomatic. And of course, pseudoaneurysms, there's no stent treatment typically. Aortic graft replacement is what typically is done. Nice example here of a pseudoaneurysm at the graft anastomotic site in this patient with a history of heart failure and cardiac transplant. Very nicely in the volume rendering, you can see the pseudoaneurysm and the relationship to the graft anastomotic site seen very well on 3D imaging. Uh, here is another example of a coronal volume rendered view showing you the relationship between the pseudoaneurysm and the right coronary artery anastomotic site. You can see it a little bit better in the 3D than you can on the axial images, though you can see them well on both. Or in this example, we see a pseudoaneurysm at the aortic cannulation site projected very nicely anteriorly on the axial views and very nicely seen on the uh, sagittal view. Again, a very important thing about the 3D imaging relationships. Here it's very important to recognize the closeness between the pseudoaneurysm and the posterior sternal wall. And so if you're gonna do a redo medial stenotomy, you'd have to be exceedingly careful. Another patient. This patient had chest pain, had an AVR several months earlier, and you see a large fluid collection in the anterior metastinum. But so you say, well, that's probably a problem because you can see some fluid post-op, but now it's a, getting to be a long period of time, so I would worry. But then you look at the aortic root, you see the patient's aortic valve, and what's that tubular structure coming off just posterior to, and to the right of the aortic valve? And you see that tubular structure on the coronal views, and you see it again also on the 3D views here, where it is giving mass effect on the superior vena cava, and that's a very nice example, again shown here, of a pseudoaneurysm. So you can see exactly where that pseudoaneurysm is by the, near the site of the patient's surgical anastomosis. Or in this case, another patient with a aortic valve replacement, and sure enough, very similar to the last case, is that outpatching of contrast at about nine o'clock on the axial views. You can see it very nicely on these reconstructed views, very classic for pseudoaneurysm. And again, if you are uncertain, or if you wanna show the extent, 
these coronal views in 3D work very nicely, and that's really what the surgeon needs to understand exactly what the location of these various pseudoaneurysms are. Now, I mentioned in terms of treatment, it's surgery, aortic graft replacement is the treatment of choice, patch repairs are usually reserved for small pseudoaneurysms. The mortality rate of pseudoaneurysms is up to 60%. Again, it varies in the patient, comorbidities, their presentation. Obviously, an acute presentation with the pseudoaneurysm leaking is going to have a super high mortality. Most of the patients can do very well if it's picked up incidentally or it's picked up when they're small and they have few comorbidities so they can be operated on uh, in a short period of time. Endovascular treatment of pseudoaneurysms, stent grafts may not be an option in cases with an adequate landing zone and cross proximity to the great vessels. Coil embolization can be used in select cases with narrow neck pseudoaneurysms, but it's rarely used. And thrombin injection may be limited uh, with wide neck pseudoaneurysms or with close proximity to great vessels. So it's something theoretically that people think about, but it's something that people typically don't do. There are only a few cases of successful endovascular treatment of post-op root pseudoaneurysms, and limitations to endovascular techniques depend on the location of the pseudoaneurysm and the size of its neck. Another example has a patient with a aortic valve replacement done by TAVR technique, percutaneous technique, and you can see it very nicely there in the non-contrast. And then when you give contrast material, you begin to see the pseudoaneurysm in the root very nicely shown. And you can see that again when you do the 3D imaging, particularly on the sagittal perspective. And here it is with volume rendering. So just a very nice look at the patient's pseudoaneurysm. I also mentioned by the coronary arteries, aneurysms may develop at the coronary artery reimplantation sites, especially in patients with connective tissue disorders like Marfan's or Lois Dietz. And there is a challenge as to the management of these patients. Some people think you need to be aggressive. Some people aren't certain. It's not quite clear what happens to these small coronary artery osteal aneurysms. And here's a very nice example of a patient with Marfan's, multiple prior surgeries, but look at the aneurysm of the lotation of both the left and right coronary arteries nicely shown. Or in this example, where there's focal dilatation of the site of the right coronary artery, which is shown here as well. Okay, so do you do anything about that? Do you leave that alone? Is that of concern? Here's another example of the prior case. That is something that is of great interest, and no one is exactly positive at this time. I think people were being more aggressive. Now people are being more conservative. Now, you can have all sorts of unusual appearances of things. This patient had a history of surgery and uh, presented with a chest mass and chest pain and a breast mass. And you can see in this case, now in contrast, there's high density, which is blood around the ascending aorta. And this has dissected through the chest wall into the right breast. So what you were looking at in the CT is a hematoma tracking through the chest wall when you give contrast, you can see how that you don't really appreciate that high density quite as much because it's sort of a relative sort of an eye test. And again, here's evidence of a leak in pseudoaneurysm, which then tracked through the patient's uh, wall. So again, a very, very nice example. And you can see as I go through the images, 
some of the difficulty at times in picking up these small pseudoaneurysms unless indeed you're very, very careful. Now, coronary artery and asthmatic dehiscence is a rare complication. Uh, we've, uh, in this article by Samet, and the case before where it uh, literally had a chest wall hematoma was a very, very rare complication. Now, I mentioned that we also look at complications outside the aortic root, and there are a number of them. Some are things you see in typical post-op patients like pulmonary embolism. The two key ones are mediastinitis and sternal dehiscence. With mediastinitis, incidence of up to 5% with a mortality of up to 50%, clinical presentation, fever, chest pain, sepsis. I think the challenge we have is that the scan may be difficult to distinguish normal early post-op findings, fluid, a little bit of air from infection. There's a great tendency to potentially overcall the fluid in the mediastinum or a little bit of air, so it is challenging. This article by Catabathena, acute mediastinitis occurs in up to 5% of patients who underwent mediastinotomy with a mortality rate of up to 80%. Staph aureus is the most common cause of post-op mediastinitis. So again, it's not that common, but it's a very important diagnosis. If you don't make the diagnosis, this patient's morbidity and mortality will increase substantially. So what do we look for? We look for increased attenuation of the mediastinal fat. We look for air bubbles in the mediastinum, fluid, enlarged lymph nodes, pleural effusions, and possibly an empyema. But again, what's important to remember is the normal post-op. Air in the mediastinum post-cardiac surgery with some fluid like this is a normal finding within several days. On the other hand, what about this case? Patients five days post-op, there's increase in the fluid present and air bubbles are there. And after a few days, you begin to worry about the presence of air bubbles. This fluid was cultured and it was serratia macrocens. So again, it is not a trivial diagnosis. Catabrina makes the point the presence of air bubbles and fluid on CT after the 14th post-op day has a very high sensitivity, 100% for the diagnosis of acute mediastinitis, but that's after 14 days. We don't have a trouble with that. What about at three days? Could be more challenging. Things we look at Here's a patient with a type 1 endoleak with air bubbles around the uh, endovascular stent, air bubbles and fluid, think infection. Or this case, this patient has so much air. When you see that much air and it's not 24 hours post-op, you have to worry, you have to worry about a leak. It's not just simply having a bleb or something, but look how much air there is around the ascending aorta, around the AP window, and you could see very nicely uh, just a very important finding. You know, something has to have leaked, and then when you get delayed phase, you can see that there is an aortoesophageal fistula, which is causing the patient's problem. Another example, and here's just that same case showing you uh, the changes over time and increasing air and fluid. A pseudoaneurysm resulted in rupture of the aorta into the esophagus and a large volume of air reflects an aortoesophageal fistula. Now that is an unusual case. Now let me finish up with this case. Patient has chest pain. You can see the pleural effusions, but also the high density in the wall of the aorta, particularly the descending thoracic aorta, which is shown nicely on the sagittal oblique views. You don't 
That's classic for an intramural hematoma. When you give IV contrast, you can see it, though it doesn't perhaps stand out as well, but you can see that shadow around the aorta. That's just a classic example. And the patient was treated with an endovascular repair of a descending thoracic aorta and discharged. The patient then presents with coughing up blood and vomiting, and you had to worry about a possible fistula. You see the consolidation in the left lung, you see some blood, you see some fluid in the left pleural space. Now you give IV contrast. And what do you see? Look at the mid-left chest. There's something enhancing. I just circled it for you. What is that? Well, that's a pseudoaneurysm. That's a pulmonary artery pseudoaneurysm. A very unusual diagnosis, but in this case, a very important diagnosis. Of course, the value of uh, using IV contrast in these patients can't be overemphasized. Pulmonary artery pseudoaneurysms are rare, but when they present, you can have massive hemoptysis. Patient can bleed to death quickly. You can have a mass which is rounded. It looks like a pseudo lesion. You can have total opacification. Again, management needs to be aggressive on these patients. If not, they're going to die. Now, pseudoaneurysms, just let me finish up with a couple points about that. Causes trauma, like Swangans insertions or stab wounds, infection, like mycotic aneurysms, or mycobacteria aneurysms are a possibility. We also talk about vascular abnormalities from Bechet's to Marfan's to Takayashu's to causes like sepsis and neoplasm. Now, those are some of the complications, but we also recognize, of course, complications involve the chest wall. We always worry about the post-operative changes in the pre-sternal space, the retrosternal space, and the sternum itself. And why don't we take a uh, soda break here. Let's go down the hall and get a, a couple free diet Pepsis, and we'll start up again in five minutes. Be right back. See you then.